Well, maybe of all books in the Bible, the book of Revelation is one that people can come to with kind of the goal to, to figure out, to kind of say, okay, what, is, what does this symbol mean, and what does that mean, and how does it all kind of fit together, and there's obviously lots of, of opinions on that, and it is important for us to try to wrestle with what is here. But I think it's important for us this morning as we're almost about halfway through our study in the book to just even revisit how the book begins The book begins with a promise. You remember this back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep or obey what is written in it, for the time is near. So the time of the end is near, and this word is given so that it will be read aloud, so that it will be heard, and so that it will be obeyed. The book of Revelation is to be believed and obeyed. It is intended to reorient us in our thinking, in our hearts, and our affections toward God. To remember that He rules and reigns over all things and that He is orchestrating a plan that has an end which will be great joy for those who know Him and great judgment for those who, who have resisted and rejected Him. And in light of that, we're to hear it and respond to Him now as we await that final day. We're to obey Him in all things. This is what the book of Revelation is intended to do for us and to us. It's to compel us to see God and His authority as glorious and to submit to it and respond to Him rightly. Well, this morning we've come in Revelation chapter 10 um, in a bit of an interlude. Just as with the the, the seven seals, there was an interlude between the sixth and the seventh seal that took us up into heaven that saw God's sealing of His saints. Well, here in chapter 10 and 11, we have kind of a a two-part interlude with with two scenes here before the, the seventh and final trumpet is going to be blown here in a few chapters. And both of these scenes, chapter 10 and 11, deal with the role of God's people calling them to submit to God and to speak on behalf of God in these last days. John's going to be the emphasis of chapter 10 and the church will be the emphasis of of chapter, chapter 11. Let's pick it up here in Revelation chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, 
just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Revelation chapter 10. Well, if there's a big idea that kind of flows through this this chapter, we might sum it up like this. The revelation of God's plan compels us to submit to His authority and speak of Him authoritatively. The revelation of God's plan, everything that we see here in this book, compels us or is intended to compel us to submit to His authority. The one who has forever been and who rules and reigns over all things that He created, to submit to His authority and to speak of Him authoritatively. So what we see the angel teaching John here and us as well. The revelation of God's plan compels us to submit to His authority and speak of Him authoritatively. Now, the way we're going to unpack this is we're, just, we're going to walk through and see kind of four... Um, Four scenes, if you will, or four uh, highlights through this, this section. First, we're going to see that the angel who stands, the angel stands. And secondly, the, the thunders who sounded, the thunders who sounded. And we're going to go back to the angel. The, the third thing here, the, the angel swears. He swears, he makes an oath. And then finally, the prophet who speaks. The prophet who speaks. That will be the, the highlights as we walk through here to see what God has said to us here in Revelation chapter 10. Let's begin again with the, the angel who, who stands in verses 1 and 2. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. The angel here is described as another mighty angel. Um, the word mighty here it simply means he's, he's uniquely strong. He is, he's powerful. He's like the mighty angel back in chapter 5, verse 2, who cried out in heaven, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And like the mighty angel later on in Revelation chapter 18, 21, who hurls a great stone into the sea as a symbol of Babylon being cast down into the waters of judgment. This angel is different than other angels. He's mighty in a way that the others aren't. And this, this angel here descends from heaven. And it's a portrait of the angel um, that, that, that descended in Daniel chapter, chapter 10. Daniel there says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold around his waist. 
His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sounds of His words like the sound of a multitude. The mighty angel in Daniel, we don't know if it's the same one, but it's one like him, shows up here to to John. It's also interesting, this angel is strikingly similar in his description to the vision of the glorified Jesus in in chapter 1. So similar that some even believe that this angel is Jesus himself. I don't take that view and I encourage us not to. I think Hebrews chapter 1 is very clear that Jesus is not an angel. Uh, He is greater than the angels. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would teach that Jesus is, is an angel, even the greatest of the angels. But Hebrews is very clear that Jesus is is greater than the angels. He's not an angel. He's the one before whom all angels bow. No matter how mighty and majestic they are, they are all infinitely inferior to the Son of God. So this angel isn't the Lord Jesus, but he's so closely associated with Jesus, so tightly bound up in representing Jesus, his authority, so intimately connected with his ministry that he bears a very similar description. Just a few things to notice here. First of all, that he was shrouded in a cloud. He's shrouded in a cloud. Daniel chapter 7 uh, speaks of the, the prophet speaks of seeing one like a son of man, Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven. That same image of Jesus coming with the clouds shows up in Revelation 1, Revelation 10, Revelation 14. Well, this, this angel descends on the, from the clouds as a sort of a forerunner for Jesus who's going to do the same soon. He's shrouded in a cloud. Notice also here he's surrounded by a rainbow. He's surrounded by a, a, a rainbow. We saw this rainbow earlier back in uh, chapter 4, verse 3, it was surrounding God's throne as a reminder of the, the sign that God made and gave to the world to, in the days of Noah when He flooded the world because of the rebellion and then He gave the sign in the sky of, of mercy that every time it rains, remember what should be coming down is wrath, yet I will withhold my wrath for a time, never flood the world again with water. But this angel comes, he comes with the rainbow, but he is going to be announcing another flood that's coming, a flood of fire. Notice also here that he shone like the sun, so he's shrouded in a cloud, he's surrounded by the rainbow, and he shone like the the sun. As the Lord Jesus' face shone with sun-like radiance, so this angel, having been with Jesus, radiates the same sort of glory. Just like Moses, who after spending time in the presence of God, had to cover his face because of the glory that radiated. This this angel shines like the sun. What a majestic creature this thing is. Fourthly, notice he steps with fire. Did you catch it there in verse 2? His legs are like pillars of fire. He's coming with, with, with fiery legs and feet to stamp upon the world in judgment. It's a picture of of fire is often associated with judgment coming upon the world. This this angel is coming with a a word of judgment. Fifthly, we notice here that he stood on land and sea. He stood on land and sea. Verse 2, he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. You remember Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
This angel comes representing the Lord of heaven and earth. The one to whom all authority has been given. He here stands in the sea and on the land and he's going to point to heaven showing that he represents the one who is Lord over all. And in light of this, everything that he says must be obeyed. And then sixthly and finally, notice here about this angel, he spoke like a roaring lion. He spoke like a roaring lion. This is not a little, cute, chubby, fluffy angel. This is is not one of those guys. This is a fierce, ferocious, majestic angel who when he speaks, it's like a roaring lion. A number of years ago, we were at the zoo and a lion happened to just do what I think he just woke up and yawned. I don't know. It didn't seem mad. He just roared. If you've ever heard a lion roar, I mean, we felt it in our bones. When this, when this angel speaks, he speaks like a lion, like the lion of the tribe of Judah whom he represents. This angel's voice booms with awe-inspiring authority. His stature is mighty and so is his speech. This is a glorious being. But what's amazing is that he's nothing compared to the one that he represents. As amazing and glorious as this angel is who stands on heaven and earth, he is a mere representative. He's a servant of the one who is even more glorious, the Lord Jesus Christ. This angel comes with the authority of Jesus. He is submitted under the authority of Jesus. And he speaks to John authoritatively about the things that God is going to be doing to magnify Jesus. He's glorious, but he pales in comparison to the glory of the one he represents. So we have an angel who stands. Second thing to notice here are these thunders in verses 3 and 4. The thunders sounded. The thunders that sounded. Verse 3, he says, when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Verse 4, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now, what what are these thunders? Well, they're speaking thunders. We don't know much else. Uh, Some, I think, with good reason, have seen an allusion to Psalm 29. So maybe later today, go read Psalm 29, where we see God sits as king over the whole earth, and he is about to bring a flood of judgment on the world as in the days of Noah. And there, his voice is likened to, guess what? Thunder. And guess how many times the voice of the Lord thunders out in Psalm 29? Seven times. So some have seen this as an allusion to that where it says the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. It may be an allusion to Psalm 29. But either way, we have this, these, these seven thunders which... I take to likely be the voice of God thundering that John hears and the thunders announce that the judgment which which has begun is about to flood the earth and and John's about to write it down and the thunders say, stop. The angel says, don't write it down. 
So, so what did these thunders say? I don't know, and neither do you, and nobody else does. But there's a lot of people who try and make up ideas about what the thunders said. We just don't know. We, we don't know. It says, when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So for whatever reason, God didn't want us to know what he said in the thunders. So Revelation could have been 30 chapters long, but instead it's not. I think this is an interesting thing to just to, to notice here, though. Even in a book that unveils so much, there's particulars of God's plan that he, he left silent. This is kind of similar to John's experience. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, John's experience is similar to, to Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he was caught up into heaven. He says, I was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he, speaking of himself, heard things that could not be told, which man may not utter. John also saw and heard things when he was caught, I'm sorry, Paul also heard things and saw things when he was caught up into the third heaven that he wasn't able to repeat. I don't know what that means other than the fact that there are some things that are too glorious for us to know in this time. Which one other thing I just want to say about this is that because some of you, and some of, I know me, I've felt this in wrestling through the book of Revelation, which in many ways has been the hardest book that I've ever taught or preached through because there's so much imagery and it's just challenging in lots of different ways. But I think one of the things important for all of us as we come to God's Word and we study is, is to realize that God doesn't tell us everything that we want to know, but He tells us everything that we need to know. God doesn't always tell us everything that we want to know. Like, I want to know what those seven thunders said. But evidently, we don't, we don't need to know. This should be reassuring to us because we are a people who walk by faith and not by, by sight. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. There is a day in which God will show all things, so in the midst of all of the mysteries that we wrestle with now, just know that it's okay and that God has told us plenty, which is what Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may obey them. God says, listen, there are secret things about himself and even our lives and, and the end and how everything will unfold. There's secret things there, but they belong to him. But there are plenty of things that he does reveal that are very, very clear. I just encourage you to not, yeah, not get so, to guard your heart from the temptation to distrust God or to not follow God or not obey God because there's some things you can't understand about him. There is plenty that he has given that is clear. Pray for grace to receive and to obey those things. Listen, because God is good, we can trust Him even when we don't understand Him in all of His ways. He is a loving Father. His justice is right. His wisdom is perfect. Well, we have the angel who stands. We have the thunders who sounded and then are silenced. Or John is anyway. Now the third highlight here, we have the angel who swears. Verse 5. 
The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets." So this this mighty angel descends from heaven and then he looks back up to heaven and he makes an oath to God. Which when you think about it, that's kind of strange. Why would an angel do that? Why would he leave heaven, come down, stand on the earth and the sea, and then look back up to heaven and talk to God? I think the only real explanation is that because God wants John to see it. God wants John to write it down so that we can see it and so that we can consider it. This is is not for the angel's benefit necessarily, certainly not for God's benefit. It's for John's benefit. It's for our benefit. There's something here that is intended to be strengthening for our faith. Very similar to when Jesus was at the tomb with Lazarus and he was He prayed to the Father right before he called Lazarus to come out, and he said, I know you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of those who are here, that they might hear. Well, this this angel who stands on sea and land, he raised his right hand to heaven and he, he swore. This mighty angel here takes an oath. He, he swears. He's making some sort of official promise before God. It's interesting. Daniel chapter 12, at the conclusion of, of Daniel's prophecy, there's an angel there speaking to Daniel who does the exact same thing. Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. He speaks to Daniel and then he raises his, his hand and he swears by the God who is in heaven, promising to bring about the final judgment in the perfect time. Here we see that same sort of mighty angel doing this again. Now just a brief word on angels, by the way. They show up all through the book of Revelation. Seventy-nine times angels show up. That's a lot of angels, okay? Now what what are angels? Angels are God's servants. They are are, carrying out God's service. God carries out His his work in the the spiritual realm through and, and by them. How? Well, they, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that, that they assist those who are inheriting salvation, which we see the angels doing. Uh, in Revelation 2 and 3, you have angels who are overseeing churches. And then you have the angels in chapter 7 who go out and put the seal on God's elect. So they, they assist those who are inheriting salvation, but they also afflict those who are resisting salvation. They afflict those who are under judgment. It's the angels who are blowing the trumpets. It's the angels who are pouring out the bowls of of wrath. This angel we are going to see is doing both. He is both assisting John and us, and he's declaring the judgment that is going to come upon the world for all those who do not believe. Now, it's important to notice here whom the angel swears by. Whom the angel swears by. He swears by him who lives forever and ever. This angel lifts his hand to the throne of God, the Ancient of Days, the great I Am, 
The one who has always been, the one who forever will be, the one who is unchanging, ever perfect, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. He swears by him, the eternal one. And he also says that he is the one who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it. God is the eternal creator. Think about that. The eternal one who was before everything and then the one who created everything that exists. God is the one who reigns and rules over all of it, of a time and eternity over history and everything that happens on this planet from the the Milky Way to little mice. He rules over it all because he made it all. This is the, the idea of God being creator is Uh, mentioned back in Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 where the 24 elders praised praised, uh, him because he was the creator. He says, uh, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. God is the one who made all things so he has the right to do whatever he desires with his creation. Which what he desires to do and what he is planning to do and what he's revealing about what he is doing is that he is going to purge the world of evil and all history of evil and he is going to purify for himself a people to take unto himself that they might enjoy him forever. So this angel swears before him and he swears by him. Now what does the angel swear about? Well, again, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. This angel, so again, this angel comes from heaven and he comes to earth and he stands on the water and on the sea and John sees him there and then the angel looks to heaven and lifts his hand and he swears Because this angel is, in some way, shape, or form, God is using to carry out these judgments that are about to fall on the earth. This angel is taking an oath that he will carry out the judgments that have been entrusted to him. That when the seventh trumpet sounds, there would be no more delay. The end of all things would come when the the seventh trumpet is sounded. And the angel says, I'll carry this out. I mean, I don't know what it's like to be John at this point. Just standing there with this mighty angel, him talking to God. I mean, all of this must have been overwhelming. But this, these are sobering words that he speaks here. There would be no more delay. God's patience with our sinful, rebellious world will end. God has long endured with our evil. But there is a day coming when He will end it. That is not popular. But this is true. Evil has an expiration date. Because God will judge it. All of it. And I think when, I would imagine, when all things are unveiled and we see God for who He truly 
is. When we get a glimpse of the One before whom the angels cry, holy, 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 and we see Him in all of His splendor, in all of His majesty, I suspect that one of the things that we will most marvel at will be the patience that He showed sinners in history. Do you ever just consider what the world is like to look at from God's vantage point? This God who made all things good, made it so that people would be able to enjoy all that He had, made them, made them so they would know joy in life. They would enjoy Him, see Him. And all we've ever done is rebel against Him. All we've ever done is reject His rule over us and say, we don't want you, but we want the stuff you give us. We want to to act like our own gods that get to rule our own destinies and do what we want because we know better than you. Now, most of us would never say it that way, but that is what we do when we reject God. Can you imagine from God's vantage point, the one who knows all things, the one who is ever perfect and never evil, how he looks upon our lies, our lies, our deceit, our cover-ups, the way that we take his name in vain so flippantly, our pride, the way we strut around like we've done something, breathing in the very air that he gives. <laughs> he keeps our hearts beating, and with it, it we use it to fuel rebellion. Our selfishness, when he has done nothing but give, our impatience toward others, when he has done nothing but be patient with us. Why is God so patient with sinners like you and me? It's because it's who he is. God loves to extend mercy. In Isaiah, it says that judgment is a strange work. He loves to give mercy. Listen to this from Ezekiel 18. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? No, but that they would rather turn from their ways and live. God says, I want them to live. I want them to know joy. I don't want them to die in judgment. This is why he's been so patient. This is why he's been so merciful. This is why he sent prophet after prophet after prophet. This is why he sent his son Jesus. And then what do we do with Jesus? Crucify him, crucify him. And then he raises him from the dead and he gives more mercy. Turn, repent of your treason, repent of your rebellion, believe upon him, mercy. And we just want to mute it. Call it oppressive. God says, I'm doing nothing but giving you mercy. Think about Jesus. Remember the, the, the parable of the fig tree? You got this fig tree not bearing fruit, and they're like, let's cut it down and burn it. And you remember what Jesus says? Give it another year. Give it another year. Let's water it. Let's put some manure on it. Let's see if we can make it grow. He is so patient with us. So I want to ask you, how does God's patience, how is it affecting you? 
I mean, this whole book of Revelation, and even this scene here where this angel says there's going to be no more delay, it's a testimony that God has been patient for so long. How is His patience affecting you? Because there's, there's really only two ways that it affects the heart. One is that it hardens you in your rebellion. Listen to this from 2 Peter chapter 3. Scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing. They'll hear this very sermon and this section about God's patience, and they will, they will scoff, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of His coming? All things are continuing as they were from the beginning. This is exactly what I used to say as a non-Christian. I mean, it was almost like somebody grabbed one of my old words and put it on a page. God said he's coming back. Where, where is his judgment? I don't see any judgment. You see, the problem that I had and that many of us have is we misunderstand God's patience to mean that he doesn't care of or he approves of our sin. And by buying into that, we harden our heart against his patient mercy. The other response, the other effect, is the one that it ought to have, and that's to humble you to repentance. So it can either harden you in rebellion, or it can humble you to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you think lightly on the riches of his kindness, and his forbearance, and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's mercy and His patience toward us is intended to, to humble us and to make us to say, why have you been so patient with me and drop us to our knees and cry out for forgiveness and mercy? That verse I just read, Romans 2.4, was one of the verses, along with the Ezekiel 18 verse that I read a moment ago, those were a couple of the verses that God actually used to convert me. It stopped me in my tracks. It helped me to see that I was just living blindfully, doing whatever I wanted to do. I had an idea of God, but I had basically created my own God, who basically was my caddy to get me out of the trouble that I, I found myself into. But for some reason, in His mercy... He gives moments like this where He calls us to see that His mercy is and His patience is not intended to make us harden our hearts against us, against Him, but to humble ourselves before Him and to cry out for mercy. To thank Him for Jesus who died in our place and rose from the dead. This angel wants John to know and wants us to know, however, that there is a day when patience will cease. When there will be no more delay. Not because God has been worn down and is just exhausted by us, but because He is purposeful in history and He has a plan. And His plan is to do what good judges do, and that is to punish evil. And that day is coming. And notice that this judgment will be fulfilled, verse 7, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. The word, um, the word uh, announced is the same word that we get our word evangelism from. God has been evangelizing the world through prophets <laughs> ever since the first promise that he made to Adam. 
He's been raising up prophet after prophet after prophet, making promise after promise after promise, intending to call the world to repentance. And some will look and say, well, he hadn't fulfilled them all yet. Oh, but that day is coming, says this angel. When every promise that God has made to his people through the prophets will come to pass. God is a God who keeps his promise, and this angel assures us of that. He is swearing before heaven and in the eyes of John and for us all to see that he is going to do what God calls him to do, which is to carry out this judgment at the blast of the seventh trumpet. So, we've seen this angel who stands on heaven and earth. We've heard these thunders sound that have been silenced. But then the angel swears that judgment is coming. And that brings us to the fourth and final highlight here in verses 8 and following. The prophet who speaks. The prophet speaks. Verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is sitting on the sea and on the land. Verse 9, So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So this scroll was mentioned back in verse 2 when the angel was introduced. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And now this scroll and what it's about and what it does becomes the focal point of this encounter. It's really interesting that this angel's been so prominent, but now the angel says it's about the Word. It's about this scroll. This voice from heaven Possibly the voice of of God spoke to John commanding him to approach the angel and acquire the scroll from him. Verse 9, so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. (laughs) I mean, he didn't even say please. You know, that angel would be like, say please, John. No, no, that. He just goes up and he asks, again, I just can't imagine how intimidating this would have been. This must have been an enormous angel to be on both sea and, and land And John goes up and he says, give me the scroll. Now what is this scroll? Again, there's opinions on this. I think it's likely the scroll from Revelation chapter 4 and 5 that only Jesus had the authority to open. This scroll, verse 2, is opened. It's opened just like the scroll that Jesus opened. I I think that's what's, what's happening here. This, this heavenly angel is handing John the scroll that Jesus opened because he's supposed to take of it and, and, and proclaim it. Now, surely when he gets this, this, little, this little scroll from the angel, you would, you would, John's probably expecting to say, okay, now do what with the scroll? Read it, because that's what you do with scrolls, unless you're a baby or a dog, then you eat them, but like, He says, read it. Nope. He said, take and eat it. 
John's not only here to give ear to God's word, but he's to eat God's word. He's commanded to consume it. Now, that seems strange, of course, but pause. Just remember, every time you see something like this, or even really the whole time you're reading the book of Revelation, one of the questions you're supposed to keep asking yourself is, where is that in the Old Testament? Where is that in the Old Testament? Because as we mentioned last time, 613 times through this 22-chapter book, there are allusions to the Old Testament. The, the entire, everything God said to all the prophets are bound up in this book in the way that God is fulfilling it, just as the angel declares. Well, Eric read for us earlier from Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, where Ezekiel is about to go to a rebellious people and to proclaim God's message to them. His reception, is, it's going to be bitter though, because people are not going to want to hear it. But before he goes and proclaims the word, God tells Ezekiel to eat the scroll. Listen again, a hand was, this is from Ezekiel too. A hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And from there, if you keep reading through the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel went out with a message of hope for the repentant, but doom for the resistant. And he faced bitter rejection as he went. Exactly the same thing that John's doing. John has a message of hope for the repentant and doom for the resistant, and as he goes and proclaims it, there is going to be resistance. Now, the effect of John eating the scroll is twofold here. So the, the bite tastes sweet, but the belly turns bitter. Why? Why is this happening? Well, of course, this is, I think, symbolic here. God's people find it sweet when they, they hear that God is finally going to act finally bring to pass all that he is promised. Yet, as we go, as John goes and as we go likewise, we find rejection of God's word. And that is bitter. It breaks our hearts. There's also persecution that comes. There is sweetness and bitterness. I mean, even as we've been studying through the Scriptures year after year, the effect that the Scriptures are intended to have on the hearts and the souls of God's people is sweet. It's sweet to proclaim. It's sweet to hear. It's sweet to obey. There's a sweetness even now for God's people of knowing His Word, of knowing that there's a God who speaks and who cares. There's a sweetness even now that we hear the words of forgiveness that He will not deal with us as our sins deserve that he promises his presence with us, that he will be with us to the end of the age, there's a sweetness there. There's a sweetness we experience when we obey his word and the fellowship with his people. When we see the provision that he promises and then he delivers, that he cares for us and tells us not to be anxious because he will care for our every need. When we hear that, even now, there's a sweetness to his word. But there's also a sweetness of the glorious hope that is to come. God will make all things new. That's sweet to the believer. Sin will be no more. 
No more sin. Satan will be sentenced to the eternal lake of fire. Temptation. Temptation will never be heard from again. How many of you are ready to no longer be tempted, to no longer desire sin, for it to be a memory gone forever, delivered from our sinful desires to pursue that which is displeasing to God and destroying to us, to be taken to a land where there's no more crying or tears or pain, no more cancer wards, no more homeless refugees, no more bombs, no more shootings, no more sickness, no more deceit, no more. No more elections, no more. It's going to be amazing. Praise God. When the believer hears that, it's sweet. When he speaks of it, when she speaks of it, it's sweet. One day we will have glorified bodies with glorified friends, amen, in a glorious land where we see God's face and behold by sight the Savior who we've taken for so long by faith. Sweet. Come soon, Lord Jesus. But all gospel ministry is not sweet. We can believe, we can receive that, we can believe that, we can obey that, we can be submitted under that, we can proclaim that, and we know that even as we do, we do it in a world that hates that, that says that's narrow-minded, that's bigoted, you're oppressive, that wants to silence that, wants to mute that, wants to pull the plug, wants to do whatever it can to hush. That's why there's bitterness. Though there is good news, it is not received. People we love roll their eyes at the good news of a Savior who suffered on a cross for them. Unbelievers mock the Savior who offers them grace. There is rejection. There is persecution. John, the one who received this word, saw all of his fellow apostles martyred for their faith, and they even tried to kill John by boiling him in a vat of oil. And that same sort of bitter rejection continues even today. There's bitterness now. It's, it's heavy and it's hard. And this is, this is no excuse to, to whine and cry about how hard it is to be a Christian. There's, that's, that's nonsense. There's none of that. But it is the reality that if you're going to walk in the Word and by the Word and proclaim the Word, that those who desire to live a godly, a life, a godly life will be persecuted. It comes. And, and, and the book of Revelation says there's more to come. There's trumpets of judgment and there's bowls of wrath and there is suffering that will only increase on the world and it will continually be aimed more and more and more at Christ and his followers until the final day of judgment when there is indeed the most bitter of all ends, when all people will stand before God and be judged. And those who have repented of their sin and receive the good news of Jesus dying for them and rising and forgiving them. Their names are written in the Lamb's book of life and they will be taken away to that land of joy forevermore. But then there is the bitter reality that many resisted His calls for repentance who did not want the righteousness of Christ credited to their account but said, no, I'm a good person and will dare to stand before a holy God with their own religious resume 
And they will be exposed, not as being worse than me or anybody else, but as not being able to stand before a holy God. And they will be cast with the devil and his angels into the eternal lake of fire. That is a bitter reality. The gospel ministry that John is being called to here, that we join him in, is sweet and sour. It is beautiful and bitter. It is hopeful and harrowing. It is comforting and cutting. The angel shows John all of this because he is encouraging him. He is commanding him. He is compelling him to continue to prophesy. To not stop giving account of what he has seen. To, to, to speak of what he has shown. That's what we see here in verse 11. I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. John here is being recommissioned to proclaim what God told him to all peoples. As the angel was under the the authority of God, so was John. And as the angel was speaking in light of what he had been told, so now John is to speak in light of what he has received. The, the revelation of God's plan was given to compel him to continue to submit to God's authority and to speak of him authoritatively. And it compels us to do the same. When we read a text like this, we're supposed to ask, well, what does this, this mean for us? And I think we'll see more of this in chapter 11, but we are to mimic the same sort of thing that John is doing. This letter was given from God to Jesus, through the angel, to John, to the churches, including us. Our role, as we'll see in chapter 11, is to join John in the mission of proclaiming all of this. Now, we are not prophets and apostles like John, but our role is going to be similar in the sense that we're to submit to God's authority over us, which moves us to hope in his promises, these promises that he said he's bringing to pass, and to obey his commands as the day is drawing near, which includes us speaking of him and the gospel authoritatively. And we're to look around and to know that we are in the last days. Which, is, which began at the time of Jesus' resurrection and is continued on until his return, which increasingly becomes closer every moment that we're alive. We're to look around and to see there is no more delay. Today is the day to proclaim this Jesus, the sweet news of a Savior who suffered and died for sinners like you and me, and to call people to turn from their sin and to believe upon him that they might not enter into the bitter doom that is to come. So as we prepare to receive the, the Lord's Supper, I want to encourage us with, with two final brief exhortations that flow from our text here. The first is consume the scroll. Consume the scroll. Which does not mean eat your Bibles. But it does mean read your Bibles. Read it. Read God's Word. Consume it. It's like daily bread, Jesus says. Ask Him to help you to believe it. If you need help understanding how to read it, this is, this is 
like my job description. This is the elder's job description. is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which includes teaching how to read your Bible. So we will help you. We'll put you in touch with somebody who can help you to understand how to read the Scriptures. But the pattern of God's people is to read His Word. Augustine called the Scriptures love letters from home. God, whom our soul is to love, has spoken and preserved His Word for us. Consume it. Consume His Word. Read it. Let your minds be transformed by what He says and be warned by what He gives here. Delray Baptist Church, please do not let just Sunday morning be the time you're in the Bible. Be in the Bible now, but may this mark us every day. Consume the scroll. And then finally, proclaim the Savior. Proclaim the Savior. Listen, we do not, and, and proclaim Him authoritatively. Don't do it apologetically. Jesus is the Lord of glory. He's the one before whom this, this great mighty angel trembles before. Proclaim the Savior. We don't have authority because of who we are, but because of whom we represent. We're not calling people to think like us. We're calling people to consider Jesus and to think like him. So who has the Lord put around you? Who are the peoples and the nations and the languages and the kings, which we're going to see a lot more of as we go through Revelation? Who are those that he has placed around you and given you opportunity to speak for on his behalf? I mean, think about it right now. In a room this size with this many people, think of all the people who right now, who God has placed in your lives, in my life, who don't know about Christ, and if he were to return right now, it would be bitterness for them. He has placed you there with this severe warning for the world that we might proclaim the Savior, Jesus. The revelation of God's plan compels us to submit to His authority and to speak of Him authoritatively. May God give us grace as we seek to walk and obey Him by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, though there are many things in this book that we do not understand, there is much that we can and much that we must. So Father, we pray that You would give us grace upon grace. Father, we pray that You would mark us as a people who consume the scroll. That we would feast upon Your Word by faith. That we would read it desperately by Your mercy. And that we would apply it faithfully by Your Spirit. And God, we also pray that You would be a, a people who proclaim the Savior. That we would be humble and thoughtful of who You've placed around us, God. Please, Lord, help us. Give us mercy. Use us now. Give us grace. In the name of Jesus. Amen.